0: Welcome to the Arantia Radio Podcast. I'm honored to have on this program in this episode, Gard Jameson. Gard is very instrumental with the Arantia Foundation, having been its treasurer for many, many years. And a big contributing part of the movement within the Arantia Foundation and the association and all these other groups. He teaches Chinese and Indian philosophy in the philosophy department at the University of Nevada in Las Vegas. And prior to his tenure at UNLV, he spent 25 years practicing as a certified public accountant. Uh, Gard helped found and chairs the board of the Children's Advocacy Alliance and the Interfaith Council of Southern Nevada, also helped found the Nevada Community Foundation. Guard also serves as the board of the Still Point Center for Spiritual Development and the ALF Museum of Life in Claremont, California, and is the associate pastor at Grace Community Church in Boulder City, Nevada. A a long list of accolades. We are going to talk with him about his upcoming scientific symposium presentation and the Arantia book in general and how it's made an impact in his life and his mission in life. So joining us today on the Arantia Radio Podcast, my interview with Gar Jamison. You'll laugh when I ask you this question, but um, are you familiar with the statement, what are you going to do with your moment of time? So, right, you know the quote. And it's interesting because you certainly have, I don't think I've, I don't know, do you sleep?
1: (laughs) Well, my wife and I tell people we don't go to bed at night, we pass out.
0: Yeah, I bet, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh,
1: I'm sticking to it. Yeah.
0: So, you know, I want to talk about your mentor for a moment, uh, Raymond M. Alf. Did I pronounce his last mm-hmm. name? Is it Alf or Alf? Alf, Alf Yeah. And uh, a lot of people may not know, but he was a he was a trendsetter in his day. Uh, Alf yeah. took an interest, obviously, in paleontology as a hobby. Mm-hmm. Uh, he gathered some fossils way back in 1936, and it mm-hmm. changed his life. Uh, he went on to uh, set up a museum in uh, in mm-hmm. uh, in California not familiar. Claremont, Claremont, California?
1: Claremont, California, right next to Pomona, outside of L.A.
0: Yeah, and he was, a, he was a mentor of yours. Why was he a mentor? Were you part of his students that would go off into the, the deserts every weekend? Was that where you met with him? How, how did you two connect, and, and, and what was about him that inspired you?
1: Well, there's an old philosopher by the name of Heraclitus, and he said three words which basically summarize, for me, all of philosophy, which is character is destiny. And in Ray Alf, I met a character uh, who was transcendent. He carried both the scientific curiosity and the spiritual uh, fervor of a man on fire. And so when we would go out and look for fossils, he would not only pique our interest scientifically in what we were doing, but also he would give us the spiritual context of it in our museum, which I'd been on the board for about 40 years a little more. And our museum in Claremont, California, tells a story from stars to early civilization. And I think any museum worth its salt should tell a story. And that's exactly what the Orange book does. It tells a story. So it really was uh, an exciting fit. And I remember keenly when I took my first drop of pond water from a nearby pond and began to see amoeba and paramecia through the microscope, and Ray Alf exclaiming loud, Date Deum! Praise be to God! Uh, <laughs> and the excitement in his voice just allowed me as a young freshman in high school to feel excited and motivated by life.
0: It's, it's a testament to him because today, uh, in my opinion, many scientists are not spiritual. In fact, they're the opposite. Uh, they're, they're very much assertive of scientism, uh, and they, yeah. they are nervous about anything that, that, that has any odor of spirituality. Do you find that uh, to be the case in, in in your discussions with people?
1: Yeah, well, I think the, the great revelation in the Arantia book is the connection between spirituality and science, and that's starting to come into play now as the neuroscientists begin to explore the workings of the brain Uh, and there's a lady back, Elisa Miller at Columbia University, who's discovered that depression in children, the flip side of depression is spirituality. And when people begin to open up to the fact, which it is a fact, that spirituality can be an incredible source of mental well-being and health, then we've got a connection between spirituality and science. And that's kind of what the Urantia book sets as its mission is to give us that connection in cosmic consciousness and spiritual perception from page one. So it's it's really, I think, right now we're experiencing what you call, Jim, that dryness in the sciences, and people haven't been able to connect, and so many of us who were taking chemistry and biology weren't necessarily uh, too excited, other than thinking maybe we'd become a doctor someday. But we really didn't see the spiritual context of the disciplines we were studying, and that's what Ray Alf really helped to illuminate for for this young man.
0: I want to get to the scientific symposium, and specifically with your presentation. But before we go there, I do want to tap into your your knowledge, because you have a wide array of knowledge. One of the things that, that you're very smart about is Chinese philosophy. In fact, I Mm. I think you hold a doctorate, and if I'm not mistaken, but uh, Mm. when you interpret the common Chinese citizen on the world today, uh, living in a country such as China, which has chosen to embrace atheism as a social policy, I I wonder, do you see this changing anytime soon? I know with Falun Gong in the 90s, there was a great resurgence about uh, Falun Gong, which were basic seemed to me, at least, to be Buddhist principles in action. So there, it, mm-hmm. it indicated to me that there was a real hope for China, uh, that there would be a new dawn of spirituality. But, of course, it was it was, it was was utterly uh, broken into pieces in 99 with Zemin. Uh, so I ask you, what do you think of the status of spirituality in China? Is there hope? And then also, if you want to comment, what's the status of spirituality in the West?
1: Well, uh And again, I'll make a distinction between spirituality and religion, but I think there is a deep yearning for a spiritual experience, and we know from the Arantia book that religion is only relevant to the extent that there is a spiritual, personal spiritual experience. And so what Chinese philosophy holds for the curious mind, whether it's East or West, is a deep spiritual vein of gold, uh, whether it be Lao Tzu or Chuang Tzu or Confucius or Mencius. These philosophers were spiritual giants, and I think it's a, it's a sleeping giant now in China because of Marxism and the influence of Western materialism, uh, which has not only affected the Chinese psyche, but the psyche of the West. So there is, I think, a deep spiritual yearning, and I'm not so optimistic about my generation as I am about one or two generations down down the line, that my daughter and my two daughters have a deeply, and you know this from the Pew Research, have a deep spiritual interest, but they're not so religious because the religious institutions have failed in their mission to provide spiritual formation or Uh, allow people through the door of spiritual experience uh, because a lot of spiritual, or excuse me, religious uh, uh, professionals have become more administrators than they have become mystics. And what the world needs today is spiritual mystics who actually have an experience of God.
0: That's an interesting point. I often ask myself, what is what is it that Christianity lacks? And we know from the Urantia Book, it goes into great depths about the problems of Christianity and what it needs to do to sort of reinvent itself and separate itself from being just a kind of a Western religion with strange ideas about redemption. Uh, but yeah. do, do you? What do we need to do, or, or what can we do to to introduce what what? What Mo Siegel called a smarter aspect of religion, which, in my opinion, is what the Aranha book is. It's a, it's a smart approach to religion. And uh, what, what can we do? I think. W- what are the immediate priorities of the Urantia community? Uh, slow and steady. Uh, talk more about it openly. Uh, promote it heavily. Not promote it. What's your what's your position on? on the growth of the Orangia book and what we can do to introduce this revelation so that it can make an impact in this time and age.
1: Well, I I, I, I respectfully will say none of the above. Uh, What I will say is that the real priority is for each of us to take seriously the definition of religion in the Orangia book, which it says religion is, and it's repeated twice, is faith, trust, and assurance which, as William James says, suggests that Christianity or religion is very empirical. Uh, It's very scientifically uh, grounded, which is to say, if you take faith as not belief or dogma, but faith as an attitude, as described in Paper 140, the Eight Beatitudes of Jesus, and you adopt those attitudes in your life, and you basically trust that we live in a friendly universe, which is from page one to the end of the book, what the original book is, and you live out that trust in the context of your own personal profession and life and family life and community life, then you will experience the fruits of the Spirit. You'll experience a quality of joy, love, and peace, which I tell my students The first quiz in this class will be whether or not you want door number one, which is fear anxiety and anger, or door number two, love, joy, and (laughs) peace. And if your answer is door number one, don't raise your hand, see me after class. And so, again, we're given that assurance that the fruits of the Spirit are ours if we indeed prioritize our lives in such a way as to live out that Uh, faith, trust in the goodness of God, as the Orangia book talks about. And when we do, we begin to experience an amazing uh, quality of joy, uh, an amazing quality of peace, and an amazing quality of love, the capacity to love and be loved.
0: You know, I read recently paper 55 and 56, and those are uh, chapters towards the end of the second part of the book. And I I, uh, the first thing is that when you read these, these papers or any paper, you always have about two or three days where you really kind of relax and enjoy the thoughts that come into Mm -hmm. mind as you contemplate what you've read. It's an amazing process and it's why I've continued to read it for 40 years. Uh, but it talks about the age of light and life and the progress, uh, that we have to make and some progress we've made great. I mean, it seems like, you know, notwithstanding our shortfalls, we've actually done some pretty incredible things. What do you think the revelators, what, you, what do you think that they're thinking of as they watch us now going through this real tumultuous age? I I wonder, are they optimistic or are they concerned? Any impressions? It seems like we have a long way to go in some ways, but we're almost there in others. You know what I'm saying?
1: Well, you know, Marilyn Kielke and I are, writing the history of the Arantia book, and what I will tell you is they are both optimistic and they are deeply concerned. So they're optimistic because the arc of history, as Jesus said in the Beatitudes, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And it's not to say there's some meek despot out there who's going to conquer the earth, but there's a culture of meekness that is slowly but surely growing under the soil of the cultures of the planet which will emerge someday into a culture which will embrace the planet as it begins to move into light and life. Um, but we have immediate concerns. I'm on the board of the Charter for Compassion. We have over 500 communities around the globe that are compassionate communities, including, believe it or not, Las Vegas. And what we say, Karen Armstrong is the founder of the Charter, says that an un- a compassionate community is an uncomfortable community. And all of us, wherever we live, we know that we have things that make us uncomfortable, whether it's homelessness or mental health or our health uh, system or education or the environment, which the environment is number one right now. And so there are, there are issues. But we do have nuclear weapons, and we are still morally quite infantile in our behaviors, observe the Ukraine and Russia. And there is a se- severe quality of trauma in each of our lives. And that's why we have to take the priority of healing and transforming our personal lives so that we can become living ambassadors of the truths of this of this revelation. So I think they're deeply concerned because the institutions are failing us. Uh, there is a transitional moment here where the angels of progress are beginning to assume the reins of planetary culture from the angels of the churches. And as that happens, we're going to see a shift in the quality and kind of institutions that are emerging to meet the needs of the coming generations. And those needs are really well summed up in Jesus's gospel, which is the fatherhood of God and brothers of man, that we need a, a deep quality of communion with God. And we need to be able to connect with one another, um, I'm involved with the Stanford Center for Longevity, and a friend, Jamil Zaki, has written a book called "The War for Kindness." The me most people on the planet, Jim, guess how many people they have that they trust? Most people in America,
0: I'll say, two: America, their children and their spouse. <laughs> most people in America have zero people who they trust. Wow, that's sad.
1: Even even in families. Wow. And that is that is the real pandemic. Um, The real pandemic is that we're not even connected with one another, let alone God. Mm -hmm. And so you pointed the finger at paper 56, and you may recall the first sentence in paper 56? Yeah. God is unity. Right. So there are only three principles, in my opinion, that govern the entire universe. One is that there is a quality of unity which connects us to one another. And so there's no question that we should expand and amplify our connection to one another, which is what we're doing through the Charter for Compassion and through other endeavors. But two, the flip side of unity is diversity. And so anything that works against diversity, whether it be xenophobia or homophobia or any of the phobias that we're observing in our cultural landscape today, are working against the universe. And as I tell my students, if you've Whether the jar hits the rock or the rock hits the jar, it's bad for the jar. So don't work against diversity, because that is the fundamental fabric of the universe. And that leads into the conversation around race. And the third principle is that everything, according to Aristotle, is intended to become just what it was intended to become. So we all have, if you will, a seed of God's will in our life. And it's for each of us to discover God's will. And as we do, we will align with the universe and we will help foster light and life on this planet. So I'll just review them. The first principle, unity. The second principle, diversity. And the third principle, which we call autopoiesis, which is self-making. Or the three inalienable rights of the universe. The right to be, the right to belong, and the right to become. And when you get those three principles, uh, and you align your life with those three principles, and you help others align their lives in whatever way you can, you are fostering light life.
0: Well, I want to ask a little. I want to dig deep in one area because uh, we may have differing opinions. I'm I'm looking more for clarity, but it seems to me that much of the obsession with self in our culture, particularly in the Western culture, uh is that we, we you know I, I completely get the diversity but it seems like it's almost it's almost resembling what what lucifer uh declared which is we have the liberty of doing whatever we want unbridled liberty it seems like a la- like the we're moving away from the more traditional family unit which is central to everything else when we mm-hmm. you know so uh And you you brought it up. So explain to me your thoughts on why working, you know, you mentioned xenophobia, which is the fear of other people's religions. But sometimes is it not warranted when you you know that there are other extremist groups that are doing great harm uh, and they themselves are working against, against unity, as you say. And then also with the, and this is, I think, where I was leading to, I'm all about, you know, letting people live and let live. But to a certain extent, it seems to it, it seems to be now, now we are a protected group and everybody else must work. And then it becomes not diverse. They may say they're diverse, but they're not really diverse. They're just almost exclusionary. They're talking about inclusion, but it's only inclusive of those people who agree with you. And that seems to be exclusive. And then I'll just follow it up with this. At the World Economic Forum, I see a lot of very wealthy and powerful people there that in their heart, I know they want to do great things for this world. But what I don't see there is faith. I didn't see anybody from the the circles of influence of faith. I didn't see the Pope there. I didn't see people there uh, that were talking about the spiritual value of what we're trying to do to help this world along. It was all about managing people and uh, climate and all these other things. And, and I have misgivings about that because I don't know if I trust those people. Do you know, you know what I mean? They, they have all the well, right intentions, be. but I don't know if I trust their strategy. <laughs> well, I don't think people yeah. can be managed that way.
1: <laughs> uh, well, that's exactly why we have the Fifth Epical Revelation, to give us the big picture. And the Urantia book describes in the Part 3 the various institutions. So the institution of preservation and the institution of self-reproduction and the institutions of gratification, those are all self-oriented, and they are similar to the chakras of India. Basically, the the basics of our own human condition is that we are biologically, have a biological origin, but we have a divine destiny. So we're dual origin creatures. So you have to, in some fashion, and Chinese philosophy and Indian philosophy embraces this, understand that dual origin, and when you do you understand that it's not just about economics, and it's not just about uh, my needs versus other people's needs there's something larger in this picture, and we need to as you said earlier, get back to basics, to a spiritual frame of reference which allows us to see the total context of the human condition, and not just Those institutions which are selfish and self oriented. So Mm -hmm. that's what concerns me. And part of what we're doing at the Charter is we have a group called the Council of Conscience, Mm -hmm. which I think in this moment we're lacking in year old enough to remember in the 70s. We had Daniel Ellsberg and a number of individuals who were sort of the prophetic voice of the day Mm -hmm. who stood up and, and made comments about what was going on socially. Uh, we're missing that, um, and the Pope gives us a little bit of that, but what bit. we're trying to do is put a interfaith spin on it, which yeah. gives, if you will, the larger faith perspective of a number of traditions, and uh, we have a wonderful rabbi from Amsterdam who was thrown from a train in 1943, and you can only guess where the train was headed,
0: uh-huh.
1: and he was raised by a French family, mm. and he was heading that up, and so I'm... I'm hoping that that prophetic voice will emerge, but again, it will only emerge to the extent that each of us, and I'm talking to each of your listeners, embrace the fact that we are truly divine sons and daughters of God, and begin to experience the fruits of the Spirit through that faith, trust, in the goodness of God, and through our own worship experience, and through our own service to family, community, nation, and world
0: and, uh, just a couple more quick questions and I am enjoying so much you being here and sharing this with our audience. Uh, a personal question about the orange book, what comes to mind when people ask you what you like about the book, any particular paper, any particular subject, what really grabs you the most? Mm,
1: that's a really hard question. Um, cause the whole thing grabs me, um, but I, I would say Paper 140. I remember 1973 at a conference in West L.A., and Clyde Bedell got up, who was one of the early uh, pioneers of the Arantia movement, and he said to all of us, Read Paper 140 at least once a month. And I haven't done that, but I've read it quite a bit, and I've read it so much that I've written a book on the Beatitudes because I do believe that Beatitudes are the essence of what faith means. And when we begin to unpack what those attitudes are all about, there are four inner attitudes and four outer attitudes. We actually have the key to the age of light and life. And it begins with each of us as we as we take those attitudes and adopt them seriously.
0: Well, I will make that the focus of a future podcast, which is sometimes what we do, we'll focus on one particular paper, and the ordination of the Twelve. I don't think we've covered that, so we'll we'll do that. I appreciate that tip. Uh, when did yeah. you throw in the what, what Meredith Sprunger used to call the intellectual towel? When did you throw in the intellectual towel and really come to understand and, and, and accept that you were looking and you had in your hands a, a different kind of revelation, uh, one that was all that it says it is, really? When did that happen to you? Are you able to share that with us?
1: Yeah, it actually happened when I first got the book. I (laughs) brought it back to my dormitory. I was at Stanford University, a freshman, and I'd overheard some people talking about the early life of Jesus, and I quickly realized they weren't talking about the Bible, so I bought it and brought it back to the dorm, and a buddy of mine, Brian Cox, uh, came down, knocked on my door, and said, I hear you are interested in spiritual things, and I just had an incredible experience, and I'd like a little illumination. And I hadn't read very much of it at all, but I said, here's a book that might help you. Well, Brian came back one week later and knocked on my door and said, you know what you've got here? And I kind of looked at him with a cocked head and said, a book? He said, no, you've got a revelation. (laughs) Well, it was at that moment, Brian and I would tool up from Palo Alto to Berkeley, California once a week on a Thursday evening. And again, we were students didn't have time for it, but we made time because we were both really embraced by this idea that we were we were gifted with a revelation. And we came in touch with Vern Grimsley and Nancy and David Canner and a whole host of individuals who are extraordinary individuals, uh, Marvin and Fransel Garwin. And, and we were studying the book together at Pacific uh, School of Religion on Thursday evenings, and I just fell deeper and deeper in love with the revelators, uh, with the guardian angels, with the Melchizedeks, with all of the beings associated with this revelation.
0: Indeed, what a great story. So let's talk about the scientific symposium. I'm I'm a big fan of, of the Arantia book science. I love it when there's a new mm-hmm. discovery, because when there is, I, I go back and I open the book and I say, aha, here it is, see, they told this 40, 60 years ago. Uh what yeah. what new, uh, what's this thing about they they finally have and I'm sure you're aware of this are you into astronomy is that part of your fields of study it seems like you are fascinated by a lot of whole things but the Sagittarius uh black hole uh they have yep. I think they found Nebadon and they don't even know it
1: Yeah is that yeah. correct yeah, well, i mean my- is
0: Yeah, the center of gravity is a black hole that sits near, I think, Sagittarius, and it was in the news, and it made the news because they were able to get a picture of it, and I'm thinking to myself, boy, if they only knew what they really found. Uh, But those kinds of discoveries fascinate me, and I know that the Scientific Symposium, which is going to be on uh, this weekend, for many people that Mm -hmm. will miss it because they'll hear this podcast next week, and I hope to God that they do. Record it, but your piece—you're yeah. talking about revelation, uh, revelation, evolution, race. Can you give us mm-hmm. uh, some thumbnails on what we can expect to see?
1: Yeah. Well, first of all, you know the science of the Arantia book is incredible, and we have some amazing people like Nigel Nunn and George Park and John Coslin, bus his soul, who's passed, and he, but he shared a lot of insights that were were very important. And I think what we're doing is sort of laying track for future astronomers to come back and say, well, this theory really aligns with what our telescopes are now telling us about the architecture of the universe. And what, as you suggested, uh, people are now beginning to see is that there is an architecture to the universe. Um, and they're beginning to observe the sort of symmetry which we've been told about in the pages of the Arantia book. So. You know one of the one of the pieces of science in the Arantia book that people have kind of shied away from, because when they read it, they read it, and I, I'm not going to say superficially, but they don't read it with a lot of depth. But they read about, if you will, the emergence of the races uh, through the biological history of the planet. And what I'm hoping to do uh, through the symposium, and I've done a previous presentation back in 2012 is to sort of illustrate the fact that the Orangia book is an anti-racist text. Now, a lot of people who are listening to this are gonna go, oh, excuse me? right?" Well, what I will tell you is that the Orangia book proclaims race as a fact, but evolutionary biology proclaims that race is a social construct and not a scientific fact. So what I know from my experience of the Urantia book is that at some point uh, evolutionary science catches up with the revelation, as it did with plate tectonics, yeah. which was proclaimed in 1935 and not really discovered until the 50s by the scientists. So again, uh, the Urantia book, the revelatory perspective, appears to be racist from the evolutionary perspective, and that's what we have to differentiate is that there's two different vantage points here on this question and we have to understand that any of us who read this book and take it seriously are coming from both a revelatory uh, perspective as well as we're sympathetic to the evolutionary perspective so from an evolutionary standpoint race doesn't really hold up as a scientific fact But the Arantia revelation suggests that it is, and it gives us a lot of detail going back to the early days of how that occurred. And again, what we're told in the Arantia book is that diversity is a good thing. So the six races were not there arbitrarily. They were there because diversity and cross-pollinization and, if you will, adding the violet blood to the mix creates a, a kind of being a kind of human being which is extraordinarily receptive to spiritual influences and as we all know the first two epical revelations sort of got wrecked along the way through rebellion and default and as a result the whole scheme of racial improvement on the planet got wrecked Uh, and what we have in the first epical revelation is a cultural revelation primarily, secondarily a racial revelation and the Second epical revelation. We have primarily a genetic or racial revelation, and secondarily a cultural revelation, and that's very interesting because culture and uh, culture and genetics have been sort of there's a kind of scientific or intellectual apartheid between those two topics, mm-hmm. and it's starting to come together. It starts. There's a number of. Evolutionary biologists, David Sloan Wilson being one, E.O. Wilson being another, who sort of brought those topics together and said, they're connected. Well, surprise, surprise, the revelation says, of course they're connected. Uh Um, And so when you get that big picture, you begin to realize there's a function to race, and there's a function in the evolutionary uh, dynamic of the universe that uh, suggests that race is, a very important part of the narrative. And when we look at from the beginning of the book to the end of the book, you will see quote after quote after quote that suggests that, in the words of Zendi, this is an anti-racist text, which means it's against prejudice, bias, and bigotry. You know, uh,
0: there's a line from a Pink Floyd song where it talks about a starting gun. And what makes our, our planet unique is the fact that every race, all six of them started in the same family as opposed to, say, other yeah. worlds where there's one, then there's another, then there's another. If we had gone that route, it would be a yeah. completely different place. But it's very fascinating because to suggest that, the, that there's even races today sounds like a racist statement. Uh, And also another thing that people don't realize that I learned from the Urantia book, that climate had as much to do with evolutionary development as anything else, and it was probably the dominating factor. Uh, Oh, yeah. Right? Because we know that... uh, Yeah, uh, yeah. and and, and I think, you know, I used to have this argument with Halbert Katzen, who uh, does a lot of stuff for Urantia book and UB the News and stuff, and he's very sensitive. He says a lot of people are very sensitive about the race issue. And until we overcome that in the Arantia book, a lot of people will simply refuse to read it. So,
1: Well, I'm, that's why I'm doing this symposium, and I encourage people to look at the recording, uh, because I think through the PowerPoint and through the understanding of the text, so the use of the words superior and inferior in the Arantia book has no qualitative implications. It has implications with respect to function, but not with respect to God's regard for the individual. Mm-hmm. So there are inferior and superior angels, and the book goes to great lengths to say that doesn't mean that God loves the inferior any less. It's just a different function.
0: Like and you say, it's it, not—it's it's not qualitative. Exactly.
1: It's yes, uh, exactly. God's unconditional love extends to all beings, and that yep. fact—we
0: are all spiritually equal. So what about this out-of-Africa theory? Scientists just don't want to let go of that one, do they? What are they getting wrong?
1: Well, again, it's the whole, uh, if you will, concept of race and that race is a social construct. So, again, there's more variability uh, between two Norwegians than there is between a Norwegian and somebody from the the Pygmies of Mm -hmm. Africa. Mm Mm-hmm. So because of that variability, again, race has been construed as a a racial, as a social construct and not a biological fact. So um, most of what we've done in the way of anthropological uh, digging has been in Kenya and Uganda and various places, the leakies, And that's where a lot of our early observations of early man come from. So Lucy, four million years so again, there's, there's more digging to be done. And as an amateur yeah. paleontologist involved with a museum, what I know is that our our digs and our fossil record is very skim, uh, very um,
0: very uh, slim at this point. Yeah.
1: We have a lot more to understand, and we will understand more as time goes by.
0: And so do you think the Denosovans are the, and- the Andonites?
1: You know, I, I I really don't have enough scientific background on that to give a uh, an answer, so I'm gonna I'm gonna leave that one to your. All right. To your, the only reason I
0: I think it is because they find a lot of Siberian presence artwork, uh, cave work uh, in the northern extreme regions, and uh, and the the timing seems to be about right because it predates a lot of the Neanderthal later appearing Neanderthal, so it seems to reconcile. A little closer. They, you know, again, I'm, I'm a sort of a part-time scientist, and I'm always fascinated. And sometimes I just have the urge to call these people that put out these papers and say, "No, no, no, you you got to read this. <laughs> You'll have yeah, a better. Yeah, I promise yeah. you. There's a Nobel Prize waiting for you if you read this book.
1: <laughs> so, you know, and again, the race. If you think about it, you know, the the uh, migration of the Aryan tribes from the steppes of Russia, moved west and south. And so you had incredible uh, movement, and you said weather was a big a yeah. factor Climate. in it, and it was. Mm-hmm. So you have Ireland, Aryan. You have Iran, Aryan. You have the Greeks, Aryan. You have this movement. And again, you know Hitler totally uh, bastardized that whole narrative Uh, But the truth of the matter is that there was a migration, and there was a lot of violet blood that moved into the West and moved south into India. Um, And so, again, as we look at these migrations, we can see uh, a lot of very valuable information that's helpful in our understanding. And if you go to India today, I had an aunt who was a doctor in the south of India for 50 years because women were not treated by men in India. Mm -hmm. Uh, and she went from the Mayo Clinic in 1920. Why? Because, she, as she said to me, uh, it was needed. And she spent 50 years there. But you had a lot of darker-skinned people pushed to the south by the Aryan migrations in the north, and so you have lighter-skinned people as the Arantia book describes it in the north, and you have a very different culture. You have the Vedic culture in the north, and. You have uh, the, the Harappan culture in the South, uh, and you have a, a very uh, different kind of, if you will, um, a kind of uh, sort of civilizational artifact from North and South in India. So all this stuff is really fascinating, but I think the most important point at this point as we read the Arantia book is to know that it's an anti-racist text. Yeah,
0: absolutely. It's uh, I know we've, we've talked and I'm, in, I'm taking a lot of your time and I appreciate you appearing on this program, the Urantia Radio podcast, Gar Jameson, uh, whose accolades are as long as is a football field. Um, do you uh, have any wish? Uh, do you see one day this Urantia book being taught in schools? Uh, do you think academia could ever, it, it, are you aware of any academic uh, facility that is teaching the book? I know Angie Thurston in, in Boston does a lot of work, uh, but I don't hear much. I've tried to introduce it to people that I think would be interested, but uh, it scares them away. People, I, I know a guy who actually teaches religion and philosophy, and he's an atheist. And I've told him about the Arantia book, but he, he's not interested at all. It's amazing to me. Do you see it one day being taught in school?
1: Well, I carry it into my classroom. Good <laughs> for you. the history of philosophy, and I teach... Indian and Chinese philosophy, and I carry, <laughs> if you will, the wow. basic assumption of the Arantia book into the classroom, but as a academic text, uh, you would be laughed out of academia if you uh, footnoted the Arantia book uh, because of its claim to be revelatory.
0: Yeah, it's not so sourced.
1: It's, um, yeah, it's mm-hmm. culture shifts, that that will be
0: acceptable. Yeah. Well, uh, Gard, again, uh, g- good luck with the symposium. I- I'm going to watch it. Uh, do you know what time it is uh, for people who, uh, have they picked out a time that you'll be? Yeah,
1: it's, I'll be on on Saturday morning, mm-hmm. and, uh, and then the symposium begins Friday evening and goes mm-hmm. through Saturday, and there's some really incredible George Park is going to present. And, uh, again, the whole topic of epigenetics is going to be done by Ralph there, which is a really fascinating topic. The uh, science behind uh, genetic engineering and epigenetics right now is just like a tsunami. And that will be shifting the culture very quickly, whether we like it or not.
0: Well, I, uh, I know that they'll probably record it. I hope that they do make it available. Yeah, they will. Yeah, absolutely. Gar Jameson, I thank you uh, so much. I know that our time is short. I appreciate your... I think we were supposed to go 30 minutes, we went longer, so I'll let you go. Uh, and I hope that you will uh, consider coming back on in, in you know, future podcasts so we can explore some more about the Orange book. Thank you so much for all of your efforts as well. You are truly yeah. a, a great example uh, of a man who has made the most of his moments indeed. And I know that you'll agree with me in the conclusion that Gard was just an absolutely fascinating man. Really incredible to hear his story and his insight. And again, we thank you for joining us on the Urantia Radio Podcast. My name is Jim Watkins. Follow us online at UrantiaRadio.net. And also, feel free to follow and share these, these Urantia Radio Podcasts. Until next time, thanks for stopping by and God bless.